Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Oh, hi, and welcome to Basic Folk. This is a podcast where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. And I'm your host. I host it. I'm Cindy House. Oh, man, what a great episode we have today. Big hair, big sound, big personality, and big feelings is New Zealand by way of Canada's Tammy Nilsson. As part of her family's Nilsson family band, Tammy's been performing and touring since she was a young kid. She and her two brothers spent their childhoods on the road with their parents playing fairs, churches, dance halls, and morning television shows, all while tucked tightly into the family caravan. Not only does she give a rundown of what the sleeping arrangements in the trailer was like, Tammy's bed doubled as the kitchen table by day, through it all, she paints a picture of how her parents gave her a front row seat to the music industry. Their band was opening for Kitty Wells and Johnny Cash and a winning wards left and right. Tammy took the practice of hustling with her after she moved to the bottom of the globe, New Zealand, where she slowly but surely established herself in the country music world. 16 plus years after the move, she has a wonderful family with two boys and has become an absolute staple in the New Zealand music world. After establishing some success in her new country, Tammy suffered a great loss. Her father had been a true north in her life and music, and he died suddenly a few years back. Tammy's pretty candid about how his death and influence impacted her life. Tammy is also known for her incredible beehive hairstyles and awesome handmade stage outfits, which she has been showcasing in her very excellent YouTube series, The Tammy Show. We talk about expressing herself and empowering other women through her appearance and music. Another funny thing about this interview is that my power kept going out, so uh, after a while, I had to do the interview by candlelight, which was so romantic. Tammy's music personality and laugh are all at once rowdy, sweet, and unforgettable. Thanks to Tammy for appearing on Basic Folk. We're going to take a listen to this song, Ten Ton Truck, and then we'll get to our conversation with Tammy Nielsen on Basic Folk. Daddy born poor, mama was too Walking through the snow, plastic bags on their shoes Papa selling houses, sleeping in a car Four babies in the backseat, underneath the stars Well, hey, hey, just work a little harder Hey, hey, punching that clock with work and prayer And a little bit of luck makes so much money Need a ten-ton truck You were part of your family's band, the Nielsen. It's Nielsen or Nelson? Nielsen, yeah. Nielsen. Craig T. Nielsen. Craig <laughs> yeah. Relation, I've, yeah. I've often, like, joked that, you know, if Willie wants to adopt me, I'm happy to drop the I, so. <laughs> <laughs> I'll make the sacrifice. So you toured around with your parents and brothers in a motorhome for 10 years, but that started when you were 12 years old. What were the years like before the family band? Well, I mean, that's when we started touring full time when I was 12. But we were weekend warriors, you know, before that. From the time I was, gosh, um, I guess as young as, you know, eight or or uh, we were already singing on the weekends as a family. My parents were full-time musicians uh, before we were born. You know, my dad was from the time he was about 13, he started touring and then met my mom, who was a school teacher, like complete opposite lifestyles. Um, but then he quickly, you know, brought her into the fold and said, oh, you can sing. I'm not going to like hire a girl singer. You can sing. 
And uh, she was, you know, lived her life terrified, but exhilarated, you know. And so they were on tour for seven years full time before my mom got pregnant with me. Having kids, kind of being in one place long enough to birth and raise three children (laughs) was the only blip that kind of paused all of us being on the road. Um, My dad still continued as a solo act all through my childhood. So I can't really remember. Well, there wasn't a time that I wasn't involved in the music industry in some form, even as a child. You know, one of my earliest memories is jumping on hotel room beds at the Holiday Inn, um, you know, when dad would come in for his break between sets. I I often joke and say to my husband, like, I feel like hotels, when I walk into a hotel, it must be the same nostalgia people feel like when they go home. (laughs) I never had like a family home with the picket fence and, you know, this home that you kind of return to your whole life. I never had that. That's really exotic to me. But the smell of chlorine when you enter a lobby, I'm home. (laughs) (laughs) It's like mama's home cooking. (laughs) What was the process of you and your brothers getting into the band, was it very natural or did it take some persuading? Uh, Because we were so, so young when we started, we started out in gospel music, which a lot of family bands do, uh, simply because, you know, you can't really bring uh, a child into a club (laughs) to play, (laughs) Uh, you know, just those restrictions. And so um, we started singing in churches growing up uh, in the mornings. Dad would play at night and we'd be off, you know, singing gospel music in the mornings. That started quite young. I guess it naturally progressed. You know, we were starting to sing a lot more. It was starting to be more time off school. Um, You know, having TV appearances, like, you know, breakfast TV and then go straight to school after that and falling asleep on your desk. You know, it was just, um, it was pretty, pretty intensive. And, And it was actually my brother Jay poor thing was heavily bullied in school. Um, He was always a real quiet, shy kid and music was his passion and his outlet. And so the bullies in school kind of targeted him. And every time we were on TV or anything like that, you knew that the next day he'd get a round of of bullies, you know, because it's this weird jealousy thing with kids, eh? And Mm -hmm. um, so he was very keen to get out of school. I remember him saying, you know, the more that we were singing every weekend, saying to mom and dad, why can't we just do this all the time? Like, why do I have to go to go to school? We should just tour and sing all the time. My parents were either crazy or brave, probably a combination <laughs> of both, <laughs> to actually take that on board and eventually pull us out of school and load everything into a little we had a Dodge Shadow which is a small like four-door compact car Um, and my dad had built this like homemade wooden trailer that we pulled that's how we started um, eventually over the years graduating to you know, a a 40 foot motorhome, but that's, that's how we rolled. That's how we rolled out of the driveway the first time. You have such iconic hair, like with (laughs) the way that you do your beehive and your wigs, but your dad (laughs) is a hair icon. I come by it honestly. I come by it honestly. I saw, I saw some videos of him and I was like, that's where Tammy gets it. Oh yeah. He had the most epic mullet of all mm-hmm. time. That's so funny that you say that because literally just this morning, my eight-year-old, my husband has taken the boys to the barber while we're having this um, interview in silence, <laughs> which is why we can <laughs> talk inter- uninterrupted. But just he's been trying to grow a mullet and my husband is just mortified and he's like, can you please talk him out of this? <laughs> I mean, it's I'm like it's it goes against my nature. <laughs> yeah. Right. You're like, it can't be me because I fully support it. (laughs) Oh, it's so great. Can you tell me about your paternal First Nation grandmother? You wrote about her story in your song, A Woman's Pain. Mm. Um, My grandmother, Mabel, uh, she grew up on, she was Ojibwe and she was from uh, Perry Island, um, reserve in Northern Ontario. 
and her mother was a full-blood First Nation and ended up marrying my grandfather, who was a first-generation immigrant from Germany. And he um, set up a, I think it was a pulp mill on the island, on the one little spot that was not reservation. It was kind of, I think it was called the depot, and it was like kind of where, uh, you know, indigenous and white and, you know, could could mix. And he apparently hired her brothers to work for him. And that's how he got to know my great grandmother, Hannah. And it's, it's, it's interesting. I've just, this, like two weeks ago, had the first conversation with my cousin, Peggy, who she was the very first female chief of Manitoulin Island in Ontario. And it's the first time we've gotten to connect. And so I'm really, I've always want, had this kind of yearning and this longing to know more about my heritage. But like so many families at that time, you know, products of the residential schools and the government tearing these families apart, take, separating the children and the siblings and everyone and everybody lost track of their heritage, which was, I guess, the whole point of that of that exercise. But um, it's very, very hard to kind of get dig deeper and get more information. And we were having this conversation about it saying, you know, she was saying, at least, you know, like you're Ojibwe and you know where your tribe is from. Um, so many indigenous she said she works as a um, a teacher at Seneca College for Indigenous Studies. And she said so many of my students come out of adoptive uh, situations where they don't even know where to start to even find their lineage. And so I'm, I'm fortunate to know the little that I do. But um, the circumstances were that, you know, my grandmother was very much ashamed of, you know, and at that at the at the time, the culture in the 1950s and 60s was not kind to Indigenous people. And it was something they tried to hide to fit in and blend in, which, you know, my grandmother was was quite, quite brown skinned, whereas her children, she then married a, a Scotsman. And so she was already half and then, you know, it got diluted. So my father and myself, you know, we're all very white presenting. And she tried to be quite white presenting in 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 that she did not talk about it. It was not something that that generation really dove into. I think there was a lot of, sadly, a lot of self-loathing because of the culture they were brought it up in to, um, you know, it was not something to be celebrated. It was not something to draw attention to because you were ridiculed and treated quite horribly. So that's something to really grieve. I think even generations following not being able to have that knowledge of that history um, that gets lost over time if your elders don't pass it on. But um, that story in A Woman's Pain is very much as much as I could kind of unearth of her story um, that her mother uh, had her and her sisters. And then with the fourth baby, she died in childbirth. And when that happened, the community, the indigenous, her tribe wanted to raise the children in that whole saying of it takes a village. That's very much the way that that culture is, you know, you, the children would get enveloped into another family and be raised by the community. Whereas, of course, my grandfather didn't quite see things that way. And so he fled as far as he could to the very southernmost tip of Ontario to kind of uh, stop that from happening. And so therefore my grandmother was then moved to Sarnia, which is on the border of Detroit. Um, and that's where my dad grew up, right next to Motown and and uh, being influenced by all these artists. And, and you know, started a band when he was nine and uh, joined a band when he was nine, 10 years old, got to open for people like the Supremes and but, you know, because they were right across the border. It was uh, so very rich musical history. Mm. Mm. Wow. Uh, the fight for gender, gender equality is a big part of your overall identity. So what has been your journey with recognizing inequalities between men and women? Like, did you recognize it as a young age? And I'm also interested in like how your parents presented it or explained those types of things to you and your brother and you ever saw your mom getting treated differently than your dad on the road? 
I don't think that I experienced it until because I was in this bubble, you know, like I had this very strange childhood where I had kind of all this really adult beyond my years experience having a front row seat to the music business from the time I was a child. So I was thrust into situations where I was always rubbing shoulders with adults and having adult conversations and experiences on the road. However, I also had this very strange, I was extremely sheltered and I was in this bubble where I did not go anywhere without my mother and father and my brothers from the time I was, you know, all through my teens, right up into my early 20s. So I'm kind of this strange anomaly, I guess, that, you know, having that real kind of world weary, uh, realistic point of view of the music business, but also being completely sheltered and quite naive in a lot of things. And so when it came to gender inequality, you know, my parents were very much a unit and we were kind of under that umbrella. So I didn't get treated differently yet because I was part of a unit that involved three men or three males, you know, and, and so that didn't really happen until I went on my own as a solo artist. When I really started to notice it, I mean, there's all the usual, it's a very well-known thing. I'm not saying anything new about how women are treated, you know, solo women are treated in the music business um, uh, when it comes to, you know, appearance or sexual advances or uh, not being treated equally. But the thing that it struck me harder than it ever had when I became a mother and dared to continue touring as a musician, um, that is when I hit uh, misogyny harder than I ever had. It, it was like this wave coming from both men and women, the comments and the judgments, like, who, you know, who do you think you are? Like your place is at home with your children right now. You, you, your assignment is the primary caregiver. You do not share that equally with your husband. And, and that these were- hit you pretty hard if that was the first time. It was. I mean, you get the mild things. And like I said, because I grew up with that bubble and that protection, it was something I laughed off with my brothers or I had my dad or my brothers there to kind of be that avatar for me um, growing up. And and so when people would make comments or talk about me in, in a way that was unequal, my dad and my brothers quickly corrected that. This was the first time, you know, as a solo artist now living on the other side of the world, having those attitudes, those old, very steeped in our culture attitudes uh, suddenly just smack you in the face. After every show, there was not a show that I did that didn't involve, you know, confronting those comments and those judgments. You have this uh, really, I mean, you've got so many great stories about being on the road as a kid. Um, this, I think this was before you went on the road, you opened for Kitty Wells. Mm. Um, so basically the story is that your family opened for Kitty. There was this moment when your dad pointed her out to you before the show, sitting on a rickety chair in sequins and like clutching her purse. How did what he said to you impact your impression of country music or the music industry in general? I think... You know, when he when he brought us, he intentionally did that. You know, we were in the green room or, you know, doing our own thing. And he intentionally said to me, come with me. And we walked down this hallway and looked around the corner. And there she was um, with all these waiters, you know, going past. It was a dinner show. And as I said, you know, it, she was in the most unglamorous of situations. And him saying to me, you know, I want you to look at this. That there is the queen of country music. Like she is who Patsy Cline and Loretta Lynn, everybody that you look up to strived to be Kitty Wells. She was the first female solo artist to have a hit in country music. He said, look where she's sitting right now. And just, you know, her in her full regalia, her in her full sequins, sitting on this little chair with her purse while food was flying off trays around her. He said, that's the reality of the music business. That's something that my dad always instilled in us. Like, it doesn't matter how many accolades or how 
high up the ladder you climb. Like the reality is this is the day to day. This is the other 23 hours when you're not on stage. And I think that was a really, a really valuable lesson for kids growing up in the music business to see, you know, we never grew up with stars in our eyes. We never had these kind of um, grand ideas of, you know, once I'm a star, you know, <laughs> it was very much, we were very much raised as this is a career, this is a job. And, um, and just like any job, it's hard work, it's showing up every day, and it's having to plod through a lot of hardships to even have that one hour on stage. So I think it was a really valuable thing, a foundation that he laid for us. All right, I want to hear about this 35-foot motorhome. <laughs> it was a Pace Arrow. There were, um, so our parents had the bedroom in the back, and then my bed was the kitchen table, which folded into a bed. So by day, we ate on it, and by night, I slept on it. Sounds very hygienic. Um, <laughs> <laughs> And um, yeah, so it all folded down into a bed. And then Jay's bed was like, there was a couch that kind of folded into a single bed. And then my youngest brother, Todd, was quite little then, so he could actually fit um, on, uh, it was a pull down bunk that came down over the driver's seats, like the, the driver and passenger <laughs> seat. So his was like this bunk that pulled down from the ceiling. So it was tight. It was tight quarters. I don't know how we did it. Um, my mom used to have a rule. She's like, if you can't eat it or wear it, you can't buy it. <laughs> <laughs> and we used to kind of like rotate. I remember like CDs and books and because I'm an avid, I'm a bookworm. So I remember like going into a new town and the big treat. I'm like, we'd find a used bookstore. And if we came across a used bookstore, that was my time to like grab my handful of books, trade them in for a new uh, stash, and then, uh, you know, have my little, that was my allocated space. I had like precious, precious square footage <laughs> for my books. <laughs> From watching the Tammy show, <laughs> seen every episode, um, it's, <laughs> it seems like you and your brothers are all very funny. <laughs> um, so I'm wondering where humor was in your family growing up. How did you learn to be funny or want to be funny? My dad was a stand-up comedian from the time, as soon as they stopped, I mean, even before when dad and mom were on the road as a duo, they were always, it was always a mix of comedy and music. And my dad was a hybrid. He never, ever could separate the two. He couldn't be serious in music. It was such a part of him and the stories of, you know, that that they told us growing up how, you know, he went and played at the comedy store in L.A. And Mitzi, the original owner who discovered people like Robin Williams and all of these com comedy greats. Is that Polly Shore's mom? I think it is. I think it is. It's one fact I know. One uh, yeah. Fact. If you watch Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee with Jerry Seinfeld, there is an episode where they go to the comedy store. And um, man, that was such a great episode to watch because I've heard the stories growing up. And um, dad did his set. Mitzi came up to him afterward and said, you move to LA and I will make you a star. I will put you in touch with everyone because you've got it. And dad made the decision like that he didn't want his kids growing up in LA. He didn't want that life for his family. So when you moved to New Zealand, um, all of your contacts are in the United States and Canada. You moved <laughs> away from your family. All of a sudden, this like business hustler side of you started emerging um, that you had seen your dad do for years and years in the band, mm. um, which must have been, I don't know, like just, just in hearing about the um, how shy you were on stage if that was easy for you to access or if it was a little bit more difficult to get into that. It was definitely daunting, you know, when I first moved here to New Zealand and 
you know, starting from scratch, not knowing a soul except for my future husband. Um, and I think that getting started um, was, it was pretty overwhelming, you know, when you don't know another soul in the music business and leaving, you know, pretty much everyone said to me, you know, you're committing career suicide. Like everyone leaves <laughs> there to come here <laughs> to make it. Like you're doing it backwards, you know, but my long game worked out. <laughs> <laughs> a really, really long game. But um, yeah, I think that it, it, it definitely took time. And you're right. That's exactly when all of the things I had learned having a front row seat to watching my dad wear all the hats from, you know, being the booking agent, the tour bus driver, the load in, the, the sound tech, um, the songwriter, the musician, the entertainer. Uh, dealing with all the logistics and booking hotels and booking venues and backline and just all of that kicked in. Um, but like any kid that kind of leaves the nest, it's like, oh, God, now I have to do this myself. And but not only did I have to do that, I had to do it not being able to use any of the contacts that had been established as a family band. So I didn't have that ease of, you know, uh, normally in a family business, you know, the parents passing it to the son or the daughter or, you know, the kids and, and then they then carry on and utilize the contacts that have been passed down to them. I didn't have that. So it was starting from square one and, um, it was, it was a long, it was a long, a long hustle. It was a lot of work. Uh, but again, I think that it's part of like, even though you feel, I felt like I've paid these dues, you know, I've, I've, I've been paying these dues for 15 years in a, in a family band and now I have to pay them all over again. But I don't think, you know, now looking in hindsight, um, I did have to pay those dues again for myself. You know, my parents paid those dues. Um, I reaped the benefit of, of those dues. And so I think that every entertainer needs to, needs to um, earn that on their own. Hmm. Also, there's a, there's that like very fine line when you're, trying to pay your dues and trying to hustle where you like want to be ambitious, but you also want to be genuine and mm. not like slimy, you know? Yes. Keep yeah. that humility. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Humility is a, is such a, a really important part of having that balance is really important. Um, I remember, you know, getting to open for my, absolute hero of all time, Mavis Staples. Um, you know, people are like, oh, what was it like to meet her and all this? And the biggest takeaway that that I took from that was I was so inspired. I mean, she's already insanely inspiring, being an integral part of the civil rights movement and marching with Dr. Martin Luther King and just her history. She is regal, you know, and mm. but Watching Regal her. is a good word for her. <laughs> that's <laughs> a great word for Mavis Staples. She is. She's just regal on every level. But the thing that I took away, you know, I guess I've always had this real, for me, this connection because she grew up in a family band. She, you know, was so close to her father. And then when she lost her father, it was like she'd lost her musical identity. And you know, be, being surrounded with her siblings and her family was such a part of her music. And that was true for me as well. And making that shift when I then didn't have that to fall back on when she lost Pops, when I lost my dad. And and so, you know, I talked to her about that. and and But the thing that I took away from it the most was how she's been in this business for 60 years, she has walked much harder paths than I will ever walk. And she radiates joy. 
at all times. She radiates joy. She radiates generosity and love. And that is what I took away from it the most was, you know, this business is hard. And like you said, there's hustle and there's hard work. And but the whole time, if you can carry joy at the center, that's the fuel. Like if if your humility and your joy and your generosity tank is empty, don't do it. You need to walk away and refill it because if if you're not giving that out, what's the point? There's no point at all. And uh, that that was what I took away from her and something that just confirmed, you know, my dad always radiated and gave out joy. Um, and, and so that's always been kind of my number one MO. <laughs> <laughs> I've been thinking about you and this record um, a lot because it seems like this year was set to be a huge year for you. You know, a lot of great tours, <laughs> a lot of great festivals, great response to the record. It's such an amazing album. Thank you. And then it all kind of like vanished with the pandemic. And mm. aside from like the obvious need and want for everyone to be healthy and safe, what's it been like for you to cope with the fact that you might be losing all this momentum. Yeah, I don't think there's any might be. I think that the momentum is truly lost and that's something that I have had to grieve and allow myself to take that time and that space to grieve and not feel guilty about it. When I first when it first started unraveling and it's 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 so ironic now, you know, we in the first month of the release uh, or two weeks of the release, um, we sold so much vinyl and almost sold out that my label's like, oh my God, we got to get another pressing. This is amazing, you know? And and so we, we pressed another uh, different color vinyl and it was going to be this exciting exclusive thing. And then of course, everything stopped and the boxes are sitting in their office. But on the front of this album, they had included a sticker with all the quotes from reviews. And... <laughs> And the album just arrived a few weeks ago and it made me want to laugh and cry at the same time. The quote was, uh, 2020, the year of Tammy. Oh. <laughs> and I thought, oh my God, like this is going to go out, you know. Uh, this will not age well. <laughs> oh, it will not age well. And 2020 is definitely not the year of Tammy. That is not going to be the thing, the word we think of when we think of 2020. <laughs> Wow. Oh and um, at first, you know, when we went into lo we went into lockdown really early and very strictly here in New Zealand, when it first happened, you know, my husband's an essential worker. Uh, so I was at home with my five and eight year old uh, 24 seven. And there was no time to grieve. You know, that that is a place where, you know, the whole world is under this trauma and stress and distress. But for those of us with small children, your job is to create a calm environment for them, a safe environment that has routine and safety for them and make them feel kind of you're you're the buffer. You're the mm -hmm. buffer to stop those things affecting them while still communicating clearly that balance of letting them know what's going on, but um, also not making it something that's going to terrify them, you know. So it's it's a it's a big responsibility for parents out there. And uh, that kind of means you and your processing take a back seat. Here in New Zealand, we're fortunate enough that, you know, we're a small we're a small island nation. It was our um, leadership acted quickly and intelligently and and so we are now in level one after kind of three months of of lockdown levels and um, so that meant the kids returned to school and when they returned to school literally the day they returned to school uh, you know you have all this build up like oh my god I'm so excited I'm gonna go get my nails done I'm gonna like <laughs> be me again and, and all this and they they went to school, I came back home to the empty quiet house, and I plunged into grief and didn't realize 
it kind of, I'm like, oh my God, like everything, it's been three months delayed. All that processing, uh, all that grieving of what's been lost and that momentum that you can never, ever get that momentum back. It's two years of, of kind of spinning this thing and till it gets to a point where it's kind of rolling and uh yeah it it was it's definitely been a grieving process and at first my first feeling was guilt because i thought you know um there are people who are going through far more devastation loss of life loss of loved ones businesses you know completely shattered life savings gone people who don't have any income and so all of these things kind of hit you like uh, your your grief isn't worthy, you know, mm. but I think that we have to allow ourselves to feel that and go, actually, it's a different grief, but it's still just as worthy to be felt and processed. And, and that's something I'm, I still am working through. Mm. Every time a notification comes up on my calendar of some amazing festival I was supposed to play, which mm. I think I've deleted, but somehow I'm technically <laughs> inept. <laughs> and it keeps popping up. Calendar messages um, are hard to get rid oh, of. Yeah, it's They are. <laughs> it's like they're embedded in your DNA. You can't get rid of them. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And and I you know, and the number of times you, you have interviews and people say, so have you used this time off to write an album, to write another album? <laughs> and I'm just like, time Ooh. off? Like, yeah, whose reality uh, is that? I know. And I just thought, well, good good on anyone who can. But um, yeah. no, um, the, the pretty much, you know, I feel like saying, I've spent my whole life building this incredible sandcastle and a wave just washed it away. And the last thing I want to do is pick up a freaking bucket and shovel, you know? Right. Um, but it will come back, but I think it's just going gently with yourself. I think everybody needs to go gently with the, themselves and not judge yourself by the same set of standards and rules that no longer apply. Mm. This is a different world. So, um, holding ourselves to accountable to these things that are no longer achievable. Um, and so much of it is out of our out of our control and out of our hands. And that's a hard thing for people who are hustlers and productive and self-managed artists or people who are, you know, as a musician. There's I'm so much always, lack of control. Yeah. Yeah. And it's that's a hard thing to come to terms with as well, is not being able to plan your next step. You, you know, musicians work a year in advance. So you're uh -huh. already kind of thinking that far ahead and you cannot think that far ahead. Mm. Yeah. Man, sorry I keep asking all these serious bummer questions, but here are some more. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, like I mentioned, I am a big fan of your YouTube show, The Tammy Show. <laughs> I love the outfits, uh, the outfit explainers, the makeup tutorials, the hair tutorials. I will never do them, but I want to see them. Um, <laughs> it's so, it's just so well done. I love, um, like I, I mentioned, I love the music segments and the live shows and um, Jay and um, what is your other brother's name? Todd. Todd. Yeah. Todd is very funny. Um, <laughs> he is. He's like almost like tone it down, Todd. You're a little. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like he's mild compared to our dad. So he, he's <laughs> taking it down a notch. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I love it. Good, good character voices. Um, so on episode eight that was posted on June 18th, 2020, which dealt with the topic of country radio featuring Dr. Jada mm. Wilson, who was amazing. Um, Jada Watson, yes. W Watson, yeah. excuse me. Jada Watson, a musicologist talking about gender inequalities on country radio. You guys talked about Salad Gate in 2015, um, mm. where radio consultants said that women were the tomatoes of country radio salad. Um, she laid out some pretty amazing points about the bias of familiarity, the more mm. varieties of something that are repeated, the more familiar you become with it. Sorry, this is a long question. Um, she also started talking about how for a black woman to break through this place of country radio is virtually statistically impossible. 
She said mm-hmm. there must be concerted effort of inclusion and diversity on all platforms at all times. And that really struck me, especially in the climate of change we are in now. And I wanted to know what you took away in that conversation and how it may have changed your approach and how do you think country radio could possibly change? Mm. Man, that's a, that's a question and a half. Um, <laughs> I think that, you know, whenever Jaden and I talk, because um, we're friends outside of just the Tammy show, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, we always come back to this same thing of what's the answer and what's what's the solution? And I think we always come back to the the, the point that we as women cannot action that solution, unfortunately, just like racism cannot be fixed by people of color. Um, it is something that people who are in power, uh, normally in this situation we're talking about, male or in racism, people who are not of color, who are white, um, people who have privilege and power are the ones that need to make those changes in order to actually affect cultural change. They need to be brave. They need to step up and make those changes because as female artists or women of color who are artists, you know, the music is there. It's being made. It is top shelf. It is world class. Um, It is not for lack of material and I think that the only thing that I can do, which I'm trying to do in my very small way with my small platform, is to bring and draw attention to the discrepancies. And that's why I had Jada on the show. That's why I talk about it in my shows. That's why I write songs about it. Because as a female artist, that is what I can do. And so that is what I will do. And even doing that small, the small things that I can do, I run into a lot of opposition and a lot of negative attitude and comments and gaslighting. And, and it's, it's really discouraging to see that. But by far, the percentage of people who are supportive outweigh the negative. And so like any, you know, social media platform or uh, anything that's public, you're always going to get that percentage of opposition and trolls. And whenever you stand up for anything that is standing up for something that is not the norm and not the majority or pointing out an issue that makes other people uncomfortable or that might take away from their comfort, you are going to be targeted. You are going to have opposition. And I guess for me, You know, when it comes to equality for race, gender, sexual orientation, all of that opposition just makes me double down. And so keep bringing it because I'm just going to keep doubling down. And it is important. I want to be able to look my children in the face, in the eye, when they ask me about the civil rights movement that happened in 2020. And when they say, what, what did you, what did you do, mom? Where were you when that happened? I want to be able to look them in the eye and say, I marched. I used my platform to try to help others. It's so important to me to be able to leave that legacy for my children and to be able to look at them without hypocrisy and tell them that I did try to make a difference for the future of the women they love or the men they love or the people of color that they love. And I hope to God by the time they're my age, it will be an absolute non-issue. I hope that it will be like us talking about ads in the 50s of men spanking women because their coffee wasn't hot enough. Um, And, you know, you we point and laugh now and go, oh my God, can you believe the sexism back then? I would love for them to say that about 2020. Mm. The year of Tammy. (laughs) <laughs> I want to if I buy if I buy your vinyl I already bought your vinyl but if I buy it again does do I get one of those stickers <laughs> you just want that collector's item yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Oh, I'm just going to keep buying them until I get it. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, because the, the one that um, is the new edition, it's it's called the Crystal Ball Vinyl. So okay. if you look for that, it, it that's the one with the that's, sticker. I will find it. The sticker of shame. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Tammy, this has been amazing. I want to do one more thing before you go, and it's called The Lightning Round. Okay. Here we go. What is the first song you learned on the guitar? You Ain't Woman Enough to Take My Man by Loretta Lynn. Of course. Of course it was. <laughs> um, Batman or Superman? Superman, always. What is your karaoke song? Oh, God. Uh, I, I don't I don't really um, have one, but if it was, it would definitely be something Celine Dion. Oh, I would love to that. It would see have that. to be. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> You and Trixie Mattel singing a Celine Dion duet. Oh, yes. Bring it. It's like my fantasy. Uh, favorite radio station as a kid? Oh, my goodness. Or um, favorite A-side of a tape? A-side of a tape would be this the best of Judy Garland. I I thrashed that as a kid. Like I, re- I basically am a gay man trapped in a straight woman's body. Like... And everyone loves it. Uh, <laughs> dogs or cats or something else? Well, we have a little dog, Harry. Um, he's a miniature schnauzer because I'm actually allergic to both cats and dogs. I'm allergic to the dander, but Harry uh, doesn't shed. You have to get him cut. So dogs. But we also have chickens and cows, but oh. they don't really count. What kind, of, <laughs> what kind of cows do you have? We have, uh, yeah, I don't know the proper names. I'm so bad. We have like five Brown. calves at the moment. We call them lawnmowers because we're <laughs> we're on we're on ten acres and they uh, they keep our paddocks crisp. But yeah, they're black and white. They're black and white. My favorite part of the Tammy show was it when you were like, my husband is home, and he's yeah. showing he's he's having the kids watch him weed, and then you zoom down, <laughs> and he's in the garden weeding, and they're just <laughs> and they're watching was, him like yeah. Poor things. That's great. Um, That's the the most entertaining thing in lockdown. (laughs) (laughs) Watch Dad weed. The the weed whacker. Exciting. (laughs) What was the first album you bought with your own money? Amy Grant, Heart in Motion. (laughs) Oh my God. These are all perfect answers. Uh, You are a bookworm. What is the last book you read? I just finished last night the Alicia Keys, More Myself memoir autobiography great read um i'm yeah i and and that is honestly the first time i have finished a full book in 24 hours since i had kids like we're on holiday and i was like i'm switching everything off no social media for the whole week uh, which is you know i'm kicking cold turkey right now but (laughs) it's hard (laughs) but read a whole book in 24 hours because it's rainy and stormy and we're all inside playing board games and reading books and I loved it. I loved uh, loved reading that. And I'm also, I, I tend to have a few books on the go at a time. I'm one of those weird people. Um, so I'm also in the midst of reading Maya Angelou's um, seven or eight book uh, uh, memoirs. And wow, powerful and incredible. And if you're a songwriter, you cannot find a better wordsmith than Maya Angelou. All right. What is your dream collaboration? Mavis, of course. Mm, did it happen? Mavis, it didn't happen. No, she said something at the beginning of the show when she came out and she said, talked about me to the audience and and was so lovely. I recorded it and I'm keeping it forever side stage, even though it's kind of muffly. And she said at the end of it, she's like, maybe we'll sing something later. Maybe we could sing like Amazing Grace or something. And the whole show... I felt like vomiting, like I was side stage, shaking, studying the words to Amazing Grace on my phone in case. Then she came off stage and finished her last song, came off stage, looked at me and went, oh, Tammy, I'm so sorry, I forgot. (laughs) And I was like, it's okay, Mavis, it's okay. And yeah, trying to hold back the tears. No, Um, so it almost happened. Maybe someday it will. That's almost like even better than singing with Mavis. I was going to sing with Mavis, but she forgot. Yeah. 
<laughs> it's kind of like Tammy, t- the year of 2020, Tammy's, yeah. Oh, I forgot. Yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> Couple more. Flying or invisibility? Flying. Star Trek I've or Star Wars? I've always dreamt of it. Wait, oh, before, the- before we move on, you've always dreamt of flying. How do you, yeah. when you, you like dream like a sleep dream? Yes. And how are you and flying it, in the dream? It always happens the same way. All I have to do is get a good running start. And I just run, 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 and then jump, and I just start flying. And Me too. Yes? Yes. That's Isn't it the best? And so, I mean, invisibility would be cool, but there's something kind of dishonest and sneaky about that. Whereas flying, it's just like pure joy. <laughs> you nailed it. Um, S- Star Trek or Star Wars? That is an impossible choice. Um, <laughs> I am a die-hard Trekkie, like I'm a sci-fi geek, so I love them both equally. If I had to, I'd say that Star Wars, there's more of like a nostalgic, emotional investment, and that's why. But and that's why it's it's so important to me. But Star Trek is like. Even if you took away the nostalgia and like childhood emotional investment, I would still love it. So that doesn't help, but I can't choose. So that's my answer, both. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And last one. Where is the most beautiful place you've ever visited? Oh, man. Well, visited, I I guess I can't really say within New Zealand because this is where I live. Madrid was like top of you know, top three at least. And we were there and it was just like, the whole light was like, the air was like this golden pinky light. And it, it felt like walking through a dream. Like it felt like a fairy tale. And yeah, Madrid is uh, one of those places I dream of where That's I just rare. run and fly. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Oh man. Well, that's it. That's the lightning round. We've done I was, it. Sorry, my, my answers were too long, but I, no, yeah, I couldn't just right. have like one word. <laughs> Tammy, this has been really delightful to speak with you. Um, I'm so excited that we're best friends now. Yeah, me too. And uh, <laughs> I, I wish you all the success and um, I'll just keep buying vinyl records and sending them to people. Um, Aww, and we'll, we'll do you. what we can to, to build that momentum back up. Basic Focus produced by Laura McCarthy and Adam Corey with Laura producing this week. Thanks to our business manager, Lindsay Myers. Alex Stanton of the band Townspeople does our music. I'm your host, Cindy Howes, and I got to thank you so much for listening today. It's just a real pleasure. Um, We are proud to be on the American Songwriter Podcast and Network. You can find out more about this podcast at cindyhowes.net. This is the 79th episode of basic folk so much content to catch up on if you missed any of it it's all still there floating around in the internet we'll talk to you next time thank you so much for listening bye